0: Welcome to the second podcast of our new LGT Capital Partners Insight series. My name is Sebastian Kistner, and today I am here with Jetro Sikinen, a partner at LGT Capital Partners and head of the Emerging Markets Fixed Income team. He is my second podcast guest, and we are talking about emerging and frontier markets sovereign debt. The investment area has substantially gained in relevance in the last years. Before going into the details, Tell us a bit more about yourself, Jetro. Who is this Mr. Sikinen?
1: Uh, Jetro is a financial market specialist with uh, 25 plus years of experience from the financial markets, uh, mostly focusing on the emerging market uh, and frontier fixed income and currencies. Uh, I've been uh, running and building emerging market uh, slash frontier market team close to 20 years Uh, We have a public track record, uh, which is extremely strong as well. Uh, Personally, I've always been really keen on on different cultures, religious, uh, the history on the global perspective, which obviously gives you a strong platform to understand these more exotic countries, which are less developed, but uh, extremely fascinating.
0: Yes, indeed. So, about uh, 25 years in the business. Congratulations. That's a very long time. Uh, How comes that you have
1: discovered your passion for emerging and frontier markets? Okay, uh, like most of the things in life, they are some of several lucky coincidences. I would say the firstly, I'm originally from Finland. Which uh, was an emerging market too. Yeah, uh, at least emerging, if not even frontier, uh, when I was a young boy uh, in the 80s and, and maybe early 90s. Secondly, I used to be a professional athlete. Uh, at young age, I was playing squash. Oh, uh, you look good, yeah, indeed. Uh-huh. Not <laughs> Still as sporty. As... <laughs> uh, that gave me opportunity to travel uh, outside the Finland uh, and gave me a first taste and spark for the more exotic countries when meeting people from places like Egypt, Malaysia, Pakistan. Uh, And thirdly, obviously, the investment opportunities in Finland were limited and the market was small, which uh, kind of uh, forced you to expand your investment universe and and kind of uh, eyesight outside the small country.
0: From squash, you squashed yourself into a new professional space, so to say. Indeed, so you can say. Okay, now let's uh, start having a close look. Well, first of all, when speaking about sovereign bonds, is it fair to say there is nothing more boring than sovereign bonds?
1: Whoa, uh, are you serious? <laughs> That's a quite a start for the discussions, um, especially after 2022, and the most aggressive monetary policy tightening globally uh, in more than 40 years, and in investment environment, which was most of us has never ever experienced. It was a challenging year. And then comes the 2023 uh, with the biggest price swings in the US fixed income markets since late 80s.
0: Oh, I'm just mm. teasing you. I don't get nervous. So, uh, but coming back to our uh, original story, what does the investable market universe look like in emerging and frontier markets? If I
1: start from the wider perspective, uh, there's around 200 countries in the world. Uh, Our research universe contains around 170 countries, uh, out of which approximately 30 are classified as emerging countries uh, and then rest around 140 as a frontier. But where where do you
0: draw the line between emerging and frontier? I think that's quite difficult.
1: Yeah, it's an extremely tough question which comes up all the time, and there is not really one correct universal answer. Give it a try. Give it a try. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, if uh, uh, if if not even global institutions, IMF, World Bank, UN, is not agreeing with the split between these three uh, three kind of a, uh, asset classes or uh, developed, emerging, frontier. Um, but there, there's definitely kind of a, a lot of differences between the countries. There are, uh, are not only economical level, but also from the political, social, environmental, so basically ESG perspective, and not forgetting the historical and cultural aspects. But if I give you an example how different these, these uh, groups are, uh, for example, emerging market universe, there is a clear difference between the level of I would say development in the countries like Qatar, Poland and Czech Republic when you compare these ones to uh, Turkey or South Africa or Indonesia. And even in the frontier universe, obviously, which is huge, uh, there is a uh, more developed countries uh, like Vietnam. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you have less developed countries like Mozambique. Still,
0: is, is there something that all these countries have in common, a, a common
1: denominator? The common denominator is that they are growing really strongly uh, throughout the time. Uh, but if we look at the, from a more structural uh, uh, perspective, which is supporting this uh, strong growth, the first topic is uh, demographics. So these countries have a favorable back backdrop of uh, demographics with uh, with a growing working-age population, and obviously the lo- larger labor force is important uh, for the growth. And the growth leads to productivity. Yes, exactly. The second step uh, of the growth factor, and and obviously these these countries are now taking this uh, leap of development on the productivity, uh, which uh, one example is, for example, the urbanization, uh, which uh, supports the long-term growth. So let me take another step back because I'm still impressed
0: by the sheer number of 170 markets that you cover. I imagine the amount of information you need to gather and digest is exorbitant. So my question to you is, do you never sleep or how do you find and digest the relevant information?
1: Uh, as a classic saying goes, uh, money or markets never sleep, but obviously we, as, a, as individuals, we have to sleep. Um, that's why we always put the high emphasis in the teamwork. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not all about uh, individuals, but the combination of persons. Come on, jeter now <laughs> you're getting cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like that, but it's a, it's a reality. Obviously, the individuals in the team have their own primary, secondary roles, responsibilities. Um, Nowadays, there is an incredible amount of information. So it's more important than ever to filter the relevant information. And this is something that you can do only at the team level, not at the individual level.
0: So accepting the fact that you are apparently team players, I would be interested in learning more about how you make sure that you spot the right information and you make the decisions what is important information and what is not. Can you elaborate more on that?
1: Yeah, obviously, the, the relevant information has to be uh, in line with our own investment philosophy, which is focusing on the long term developments rather than kind of a short term movements. Um, and especially in this uh, world we're living in, the never ending information flow. Uh, we have built up our kind of our own way of gathering the information uh, globally. We have. What does that mean? Uh, we have built up the network of information sources and personal relationships during the last 20 years. Uh, so we discuss directly w- w- with these sources, which I mentioned. IMF, World Bank. Yes, the, that's the kind of a global institutions. Um, that's one source. Then another one is the more local institutions, which are central banks, debt offices, locally um, located independent analysts. And then uh, obviously also the, the global issuers uh, in the development bank perspective. But
0: is this not just the standard industry practice that everyone speaks with everyone?
1: Uh, yes and no. Uh, if we say yes, it possibly covers the traditional universe of these 30 countries. But then I say no for this extended universe of 140 countries. And uh, you can imagine how how much time and effort it takes to build these relationships. And Corona time was an extremely good example that if you did not have the relationships and the network already in place for ages, it was impossible to build it up. during the virtual meeting uh, times. Okay. So, uh, but t- tell me, give me some secrets.
0: I want to <laughs> learn more. We all want to learn more. What exactly do you discuss with them? How do you have real
1: life examples? Yeah, we, yeah, we. Obviously, we have a real life examples. We have a, around four hundred fifty to five hundred meetings per per year with the different uh, different institutes from eighty countries. So. Let's, uh, let's give an example of, for example, central banks. We traditionally obviously discuss about the monetary policy targets like inflation dynamics and so on could be passed through uh, effects to the inflation from the FX markets, so currency markets, uh, could be FX reserves uh, targets in intervention policies. Uh, and also what we are keen on hearing is that what is the, the currency market liquidity and our possibilities to have an efficient execution of, of of investments when we are willing to do them. But then on the that's a central bank perspective. Then from the let's say debt offices, uh, we have a kind of a cases where we've been discussing with uh, with the Latin American debt offices of their financing needs and and what kind of instruments they they are preferring. Where where our needs have been heard. Uh, and and kind of a we have received the favorable um, not terms but but something that we have been willing to look at from the longer uh, investment perspective uh, and then uh, cases like discusses with uh, with one of the African debt offices extending their yield curve uh, longer than 10-year maturity uh, which we saw as a, as a kind of a also increasing the market confidence uh, towards this particular country.
0: Okay, speaking
1: of countries, um,
0: of course it would be very interesting for us to get a better understanding of uh, which markets markets you deem to be interesting, both on the short-term and also on the long-term. So can you give us some specific examples where you think these are the rising stars?
1: Okay, let's talk, uh, start from the kind of a I would say most uh, developed, uh, which has been kind of in, in our radar streams for, for ages, the Uruguay, uh, which is having a very strong uh, story in both economical, but also environmental, social, and, and a governance perspective. All indicators at the very high level, uh, mostly best of class uh, in its own peer group. Green energy, for instance, is very important. Yeah, yeah they've been uh, putting a lot of focus on the on the environmental aspects. Uh, they have lowered the emissions. Uh, they are having a sustainable use of natural resources. But also on the governance perspective, uh, low corruption, very high institutional strength, political stability makes Uruguay like really good example of strong Positively developing country, which is already at the high level. Okay, investment horizon right now? Yeah,
0: it's uh, it's forever. Okay, <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. And other than that, is there is there another example that you can't mention? Yeah, maybe we um,
1: we take the Uzbekistan, which wow. is wow,
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's that's uh, that's a huge story
1: turnaround in two thousand and sixteen. Yeah, that's uh, the, the, exactly the political regime shift or turnaround uh, towards more, uh, I would say, reform orientated uh, economy, uh, which happened after the president Karimov died on 2016 and a new president stepped in. No one was expecting this kind of a turnaround case, so it was a bit of a surprise to, to everyone. Um, but they've been having an extremely positive development uh, on the social, uh, the governance uh, and the economical side. But there is definitely a lot more work to do on the env- environmental side, especially with the green energy and uh, use of natural resources. So uh, it's it's still it's a strong case, uh, but it's kind of a longer term uh, perspective. It has turned around some like five years ago. So, it's already proving to be a a positive developing case but it usually takes longer time to see the the seeds of these these, uh, regime shifts, the turnarounds and so on. Okay, and so what countries then would you consider to be the hidden rising stars of the future? Okay, I will pull out two. Uh, I mentioned the names and then I give a few few arguments, I would say Mozambique and Nigeria. Um, both are obviously the energy exporters uh, either now or in the future. Uh, Mozambique... Yeah, let's start with that because it's a really interesting story. Uh, <laughs> lots of discussions with the IMF recently. Yeah, yeah. The, the country is having a, one of the largest um, reserves of natural gas uh, fields. Um, which will mean that it will be one of the biggest producers of uh, liquid natural gas in, a, in, in some years to come. Uh, definitely, uh, it's, it's still really dependent on the agricultural as the 80% of the population is employed by the agri uh, uh, and much of the land is still uncultivated. But it, it will be seen that how effectively the government and the country is able to use these proceeds from the LNG side, which will show the, the, the coming years and, and decades, how it will come up.
0: Yeah, that would have been my question. So if you say coming years and decades, where do you see the t- time horizon with regards to Mozambique?
1: Yeah, maybe f- 5 to 15 years is it, kind of a crucial part that uh, we will see how it, how it ends up.
0: At Nigeria?
1: Nigeria is kind of a. They had the presidential elections uh, just a bit more than a month ago, um, which was a bit of a disappointment from from the from our perspective. There was a high hope of this kind of a political regime shift or political change towards more reform-oriented policies. Um, There was a kind of a hope for the next generation. Uh, what we call, and and also a bit disappointed about the voter turnaround, which was really low uh, in a country which had uh, 11 million more uh, voters, mostly these young ones. So that's uh, that was a bit of a disappointment, but obviously it's a country which is, first of all, huge, uh, has, uh, has obviously the big energy reserves uh, and could be on the really positive development path if it's willing to do uh, economical reforms uh, on the country level.
0: So from what what you say, I hear that you probably also apply a 50, 5 to
1: 15 years
0: time horizon.
1: Yes, definitely. And, and it needs the kind of a attitude change uh, from our perspective.
0: Interestingly, you mentioned four countries, uh, none of them from Asia. So,
1: what about Asia? Is there a hidden champion? Uh, there, there's plenty of those, but uh, let me pull out one. Uh, that's the Bangladesh. Um, the country uh, which has made a, a huge um, kind of a development during the last 50 years. And it's a huge country, isn't it? Yes, with 170 million people, uh, the median age below 30 years. Um, and. And almost thirty percent of the of the population is is aged below fifteen years, um, but it was uh, the the second poorest country in the world, uh, nineteen seventy one, and now during the last fifty years, the standard of living has increased incredibly, um, uh, driven by this kind of a uh, est factors education health uh, access to uh, electricity. Um, it's well diversified economy, obviously focusing on on certain areas, but uh, but still, the one negative side is obviously the its dependency on the energy imports, and especially during the last uh, year when the energy prices have picked up, uh, it's been a bit under pressure. But I think the Bangladesh is it's kind of a good case in in Asia. It has done a lot of good work uh, and and. We, we just need to wait how it, how it develops on the, on the longer horizon.
0: Thank you, Jetro, uh, for giving us these examples. I think everyone would be keen to learn more about uh, your ideas and uh, hearing about specific examples. Unfortunately, we're already coming towards the end of our 20 minutes podcast. So before wrapping up, I would like to know why is it the right time to invest now in
1: emerging market debt? Well, tricky question. Uh, always with the timing and uh, especially in an uncertain environment like we have currently globally. But maybe i give a few few arguments. First of all, the valuations uh, are attractive, uh, both from the absolute and relative perspective. Uh, Global investor positioning is low, uh, so we are not overcrowded uh, environment. Uh, Fixed income obviously providing a lot of a diversification and especially in the case of emerging market and a frontier uh, fixed income, uh, as there are a lot of different aspects and, and risk drivers on these four basically sub-asset classes that we've been discussing. And, and then it's one of the very few kind of asset classes, the emerging market frontier, where you are able to invest through the, the whole rating universe, uh, starting from the investment grade, really developed countries, uh, down to the less developed uh, so-called high yield uh, names, which have, uh, all have different uh, return drivers.
0: Okay, thank you very much Jethro. I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope so did you and our listeners. Um, If you have any questions on emerging and frontier market sovereign debt or would like to discuss the matter further, please send us an email to lgt.cp.insights at lgtcp.com. The white paper is available on our website. Please visit lgtcp.com. Thank you very much and see you soon.
1: Thank you.